Father God, let the vision of you this morning enrapture our souls. Capture our hearts, bend our wills to you and cause us to walk in your ways as only you can do. Father God, perhaps the struggle that we have, the sin that we bring and bear is because we look so little. We see so little of what you've done. Our hearts are not ravaged by what you bore for us on the cross. We think so lightly of our sin. Father God, help us to catch a better vision. Help us to see you for who you are. Help us to see you high and lifted up, seated at the right hand of the Father, paving the way for us so that we have bold access to your throne, even in this moment, cause our hearts to sink. Lord, we give you this time. Lord God, we submit it to you. Lord God, we pray, Lord God, that you would be over it, that you would supersede it, Lord God, and that you would challenge our hearts. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, welcome this morning. Go ahead and turn with me to Colossians. Colossians 2. And if you're joining with us for the first time, my name is Dustin Nally. I'm an associate pastor here at Cross Community Church, and I'm over the counseling ministry here at Cross. So I'm just glad to have you here. Just want to welcome you. Colossians 2. So if you've been joining with us too, uh, you recognize that we've been in a series now as we walk through this time in, in Colossians. And I just want to give a little bit of background as we dive in this morning so we have some context for where Paul is going and so that we can make the connections back to what we would face in our context today. So we see that Paul was writing and where was Paul writing from? He was most likely writing from imprisonment in Rome. Uh, there's other places that have been proposed, but it's more likely that it's Rome that he's writing from. We recognize that he had not connected with Col the church at Colossae. How? Directly. So he hadn't met these people face to face. Uh, so he is communicating via letter, right, his heart for them and encouraging them and desiring for their best and desiring for them to combat what's been going on with this uh, heresy that we're going to deal with today. And I just want to Think about that for a second. Like, it's like his heart's going out for this people that he's never met before. Well, put it in the context of your own family. What happens like when your children, right, they call you on the phone and you can't get to them? Think about how, how hard that would be for you to try. I want to get through the phone. I want to rescue you. When they call in distress or they have pain or they're, you know, they're, they're sent off to college, right, and, and they're, they're struggling through life and you're trying to help them. And put it in the context of here where Paul's trying to reach them. He's, so he's trying to lay out what, whatever encouragement that he possibly can. The timing of this is probably post his third missionary journey. He'd spent three years in Ephesus where he was preaching the gospel in the surrounding area, what's known as Turkey today. And through that, this church is birthed. Okay, but again, he had never met them directly. So think about this and, and connect the dots. What we wanna see this morning through our text is that by walking in the freedom of true faith, believers will recognize man-made religions that are around them. They'll recognize man-made religions. We get, so beginning in verses six, right? I want you to see that remaining tethered to Christ in order to recognize the threats to our faith. Beginning in verse six. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, 
rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All right, so what we need to see here is that as we are tethered to Christ, we're gonna recognize the things that are around us. And how do we do this first and foremost? Paul uses some great language for us to establish this. He uses these terms like being built up, established. And both of these participles are used passively. So who's doing the work in us this morning? Now, I'm gonna have some questions for you and I expect responses. The first group, I, I, I chided them a lot and they had to deal with it, okay? So you're, you've already slept in, you better be present, okay? All right, so long, we got that down. It's established, so when you don't respond, it's on you. It's not me. So this is passively happening, so who's doing the work? God is doing the work in our lives. He's establishing us. So Paul was telling the Colossians that God would be the one to ground their faith, to build them up, and to help them across the finish line. See, there could be no other way and no real hope if not for the mighty hand of God in our lives. In case we are tempted to think that we can do it on our own, the truth is that it has always been this way, church. This is God's promise from the Old Testament and it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Think about Ezekiel, right, 36. He says what? And I will give you a new heart. You can just sit here. If you go to Ezekiel 36, just start underlining I and recognize everything that the Lord does in your life. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God's promise to rebellious Israel and by extension, his rebellious church today is that he will cause us to walk in his ways. God's wonderful sovereignty is riddled all throughout scripture. We could sit here and just go through the old and new and see it. God's promises to his people and, God's, and Jesus' promises to his disciples today is that he will, give us, he will lead us by his firm hands. See, we're able to stand because Christ is able to make us stand. So yet notice believers are never relieved, though, of their responsibility to walk out their faith. God is sovereignly going to draw us out, but we are not relieved of the responsibility. See, it's the beautiful mystery where divine sovereignty and human responsibility meet. As Paul would write to the Philippian church, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, your responsibility. For it is God who works in you, God's sovereignty, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are called to grow in depth of understanding regarding our salvation, yet God is at work in us. So we must actually obey and trust the Lord, and yet he is working in us for his good pleasure. Meaning the Lord is pleased to see you through. He loves to work in you. He's not begrudged, right, by your stubbornness. He is not stifled by your fall back into sin. No, he is ready to respond and lift you up. He's ready to carry you. See, in our passage, this walking is the daily life of a believer living in union with him. It's the, it's the call to faithfully mirror our savior, to engage with him in daily and moment by moment so that he can direct our steps. It's how John would encourage the believers of his day to remain. It says, whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in him the same way in which he walked. 
Walking also draws our attention to the continual action of following Jesus. It's the, it's the journey that we're on. Paul was drawing out to the Colossians to walk in deeper faith. Why? They were to remember the nature and content of their faith at the time of their salvation. And that was to guide them throughout their Christian lives as well. The content of their salvation, right? The gospel. So can you, church, get over the gospel? There it is. You failed. There it was. Can you get over the gospel? No. You learn to continually imbibe the gospel over and over in your life. Why? Why? Because as you grow in your faith, as you grow and are challenged by the Lord, you understand your sinfulness and it is completely overshadowed by God's beautiful sacrifice. You never get over the gospel. It just becomes more fruitful and more beautiful each and every day. So let's look at some key words that we see here. Rooted. And I love all this terminology. This is good. We have, we have some great foundation here. So rooted, it's the grounding of our faith in Christ. And just as the roots of plants draw out nutrients from the ground, he supplies our every need to grow more into him. The st stability and roots, right? The plant cannot survive without the roots. You must be rooted and grounded in him. This is how the Colossian church was going to com combat the heresies that would try and infiltrate. And it's how we, the church, continue to combat. It's built up. As the builder who can build a massive structure so long as the foundation is large enough so we are able to grow in ways we could never imagine so long as this foundation is secure. I mean, think about it. Go, go to some of these skyscrapers. Go visit New York City. Go over into Dubai, right? And, and see these huge structures. And how do they stand so tall? It's because uncover the ground and go deep and see where their foundation is at. And that's how these superstructures are made. Christ is the author of the universe and he is your foundation. What can he do through you? What can't he do through you is the better response. He, can't, he can do all things through you. You're built up. You're established in the faith that serves to grow our confidence. But see, this is not a baseless faith. This is just not of my feelings as we'll talk about in a minute. This is based on God's word. And how do we know this, right? For the Colossian church, we recognize that this is rooted in God's word because Epaphras, right, a faithful servant of the Lord, had been preaching to them and sharing the gospel with them so that they could come to faith. That's how this church came into being. But they were rooted and grounded in God's word so that they could see what was around them and trying to creep in. And what is the result? It's always the same, right? It's always the same, abounding in thanksgiving. A thankful heart emerges from a truly changed heart. A truly thankful heart is one who is growing continually in the understanding of our salvation. How much our Savior sacrificed to purchase us back to himself. Thankfulness doesn't discount the struggle we have. God is not minimizing, right, the, the, the sin of our lives. He's not minimizing the struggle that we're going through. But it redirects us to the only one that can truly shoulder it. And that's Christ himself. See, remember, most of the New Testament churches that are being written to, most of these letters are coming to churches in what? In a persecuted context, in a context of suffering, where they are isolated and away, and they need help, they need instruction. So they understood this, but the outcome is to be the same. And our dynamic faith should grow in us a heart of pure thanksgiving to the Lord for his great rescue and redemption. Paul's argument begins to build because this encouragement is apparently coming with a warning. Something's happening. 
Something's going on in the Colossian church. And we see the threat right there in verse eight. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So interestingly, the threat that Paul talks about goes unnamed, unlike in other letters, thinking of like the Galatian church, where we see that the Judaizers were terrorizing them and causing them to stumble. So, but he gives us plenty of clues uh, so that we can target it and see. And this is helpful for us. This is helpful for us today to apply the context because the specific philosophy being directed, we see it all over the place in our context and in our culture. So let me be clear. Every generation will face some type of threat, some type of infiltration from the world, some type of wolf in sheep's clothing coming into our midst, always. So we must be vigilant. The philosophy during Paul's time was trying to take them captive, yet followers of Christ must understand that we are called to wage war against these false ideologies to do what? To take them captive. And that's exactly what Paul tells the Corinthian church. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion that is raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought what? Captive. There it is. That was better. That was sweet. That was good. Captive to every Christ, to obey Christ. It is why our Christian walk is to be intentional since we cannot merely coast through this life. Ask any brother or sister in Christ living in a persecuted context how they live and you will hear intentionality behind every one of their steps. They have to be. When they're worried about their very lives, right, they have to be. Everything is strategic for them. So Paul's words carry a weight. And even though this thread is not named, Paul introduces it and we pick up on the primary tenets. For starters, the most serious error of this false teaching in Colossae was that they went about their spiritual lives with only the natural insight. They were only using their senses, right, to gauge this. They did not go to God to learn of him, nor did they learn from the revelation of Christ that was available to them. It's almost like King Solomon, right, in Ecclesiastes. He starts out on the right path, right? He gains wisdom from the Lord. He's, he's connected to the Lord. And then he takes this journey. And in this journey, he chooses to shelf his spirituality for a moment, right? And to pursue all of these endeavors, whether it's a building projects, whether it's sensuality, whether it's in exploring all of these things, but it is apart from God. And in that, he is left just in shambles, wrecked. And he comes back. But yet what we see at the end of that time in the journey back to the Lord, he recognizes that it was that simple faith at the beginning that he was to hang on to, to give him meaning and purpose. So it's not just about a faith that right, we can see right here. It is much deeper than that. The Colossian controversy was a mixture, uh, first and foremost, of Jewish ceremonialism, right? And early forms of Gnosticism. Think about it. So Jewish ceremonialism deals with like circumcision, the festivals, holy days, all of these things that are external features, right, to what's supposed to be an inward reality. And all these, uh, all these Christ fulfilled when he laid down his life for us. His sacrifice was enough, so we don't need circumcision as an outward sign. The blood of Christ is our circumcision, as we'll see. Early forms of Greek Gnosticism, asceticism, right, the thought that matter is evil, therefore treating the body poorly, but it doesn't lend itself to just going in the direction of proper worship. No, what it does is it lends itself to improper worship, the leading of worshiping spirits, right? Or angels, higher beings. And we see this all throughout our culture today, right? As, as the church is jettisoning people 
They're not coming back to faith in Christ. They're coming back to spirituality. So when you go talk to somebody on the street, what are you gonna ask them? You're like, do you know Christ? And they're gonna be like, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm spiritual. As if that means something. We gotta define things a little bit. I'm spiritual. Spiritual to what? What are you talking about? What are you, what are you worshiping? Elemental spirits and rudimentary principles. This means that the basic building blocks of, is of something, in this case, this false ideology that was being created is what Paul's talking about. And what does he say about all of these ideologies? What are they? They are empty, devoid of worth. They hold no weight. Think about that. And this is important because when we make the comparison to Christ here in a moment, what do we see that Christ does? He fills us. The philosophy has no value. It's not weighty. It has no gravitas, right? And should have no bearing on the Christian's life. It is meaningless. And as Paul often does in the epistles, he masterfully lays out for us the reasons or why this mystery of Christ's filling applies to us. Because what follows in 9 through 15 is a long list and rationale as to why they can overcome these false ideologies. And think about it. So part two, or point two, refute empty philosophies by trusting in the person and work of Christ in your life. Verses 9 through 15. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Say fullness. Say it again. Say it like you believe it. And you have been filled in him. Who is the head of all rule and authority? And in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Paul argues to show the, these lesser bankrupt ways of thinking as having no value, then he points to the greatest reality, which is Christ's redemptive work on our behalf. He moves from the empty philosophy to the full belief being found in Christ. And what's his reasoning? We can see it in four different subpoints of our time this morning. He says, one, in verse nine, Christ is fully God. This carries over from the early argument and from a couple weeks ago, if you were to just turn back with me to chapter one, what do we see? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, beginning in verse 15. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That is everything he might be preeminent for in him, there it is, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Christ is fully God. And by his fullness, Paul derives a wonderful conclusion. We are made full through Christ. Christ talks about this. He talks about it when he, when he sits with the woman at the well in John 4. He says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life, overflowing. 
And when I was just trying to picture this fullness in my mind this week and just relishing in what Christ has done in my life, uh, I had an image uh, back when I was 14. So if you were to go to my hometown, you go to White County, you go to, into Nally Valley, right? My last name, my namesake. And that's where we would play. We go, we go up to Daddy Bud's every Sunday, riding along. And behind Daddy Bud's, there's a little creek. And it's a little old creek. It's a little insignificant thing. You know, at any given day, you'd walk down and you'd maybe get down to your knees. It's not big at all. But during the summertime, when it rains, of course, it would rise, as all creeks do, right? And would overflow. And there was this beautiful old antique bridge that went over the top of it. And I mean, this thing was ready to go. So when I say like termite ridden, it's gone. But it was a great picture for anybody looking to get some pictures. But the DOT were like, all right, this thing needs condemned. So they take it down and then they build this monstrosity of a dam. And I, when I'm, I'm talking about huge. This thing was, it didn't span from here to the end of the room over there. It was a little bridge. What they put in was massive. And what came underneath were these huge struts of support, right? I mean, they're just huge and deep. But they weren't considering the fact that, guess what? Creeks rise. So what happened? And they complained and we fought, our family fought. But then that summer, summer rains came and the creek rose, backed it all up and that dam backed up. And so the entire valley flooded. Daddy Bud's house is underwater. My, my great uncle's house is underwater. We're chicken farmers. So uh, about five houses went underwater. That's about 200,000 chickens just gone in a mess. It was gross to say the least. But what I want you to hear is not the destruction, but I want you to see the power of that fullness, that overflowing of its banks as the image that you take with what Christ does in your life that he derives for you this fullness that cannot contain. There are no breakers that can hold it in when Christ pours out his power on you. Think about King Solomon again. We can use a better example, right? When he establishes the temple and God's Shekinah glory comes down. Can Solomon stay in the temple? No, he can't. See, it's all simple answers. You got it. No, he can't stay in. He's pushed out because the, the, the presence of the Lord is so palpable, right? That Shekinah glory and that's what Paul would reference when he talks about our body as a temple. That that Shekinah glory, that presence of the Lord fills us to the brink and overflows us. And clearly Paul is talking here. This is a play on words, this fullness, right? It is so we're not talking that we are the same as Jesus, right? We're not saying that we become gods. That's a heresy. But we're talking here in the genetic, generic sense of the term, Right? that Jesus was fully God, believers are fully complete. We don't lack anything, that type of fullness. Nothing lacks from our salvation. The understanding of salvation may grow and this appropriation of the blessings of salvation may increase over time, but in Christ, they had all there was, the fullness of the salvation wrought for you and me. What more could he do? The answer is simple, nothing. God could not give more than all of himself to you and I. It's why Paul could tell the Ephesian church, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through the spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, there's those words again, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is what Christ is doing for us. Christ is fully God. He also has all authority, right? We see that right there in our text. Christ 
testimony is the same. As he gives the great commission, he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. That's how we go. That's the strength that we go in. And what else do we see? Christ is the new covenant for his people. Verses 11 and 12. See, we're, we're, co- we're covenanted by what? Christ shed blood, not this outward sign of circumcision. We're covenanted through his blood sacrifice for us. Our circumcision is one of the heart, not some outward sign. Therefore, it cannot be undone like something that is merely physical. That is the salvation that we are wrought. If God has filled you and God has saved you and God has redeemed you, you cannot be unsaved. That's a very important point. Christ is the new covenant for his people and he rescues his people. He does not leave them to be. We're covered by his complete work of salvation. It's Paul's wonderful declaration to the Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now what do we see? Baptism is an outward sign of this new covenant inward reality. Christ is also the new life for his people. Right there in verse 13. We were dead. We were then made alive. Why? Because Christ was able to make us alive. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. This means we were without hope apart from Christ. Christ then makes us alive through his mighty redemptions. It's almost the exact same words that Paul uses to the Ephesians church where he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Whose workmanship? God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. And finally, Christ is the one and only authority. That's what we see right there in verses 14. He cancels the record of debt that stood before us. These are legal terms, right? Legally, we had demands. That's what I tell my boys all the time, talking about when we sin, there is a consequence for a sin, but it also comes at a price, It has a cost to it and it has a penalty associated with it. So when they sin and when I sin and when you sin, we have guilty mark. So when we stand before the the judge, we are condemned. Christ pays for all of that. Everything, past, present, future, the debt has been paid in full. There is nothing that can be referenced on your account, accounts, ledger, clean. There's nothing there before the judge anymore because of Christ's redemptive work in your life. The wrath of God has been fully satisfied, exhausted on the person and work of Christ. See, Christ is the ultimate reason we can then fight these false ideologies. If this is who he is, if this is who he says he is, and this is what he has done for us, then anything that sets itself up against God will look fallacious, right? Well, look, ridiculous. These false religions and cults, the world, it's lust. My own debased mind in Christ, I can succeed and walk faithfully in and through him, period. So what do we see? Part three, respond in freedom to those who would entice you with their self-made religion. This is where Paul lays out for us more specifically what's been creeping into the church, Beginning in verse 16, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are all a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism of worship of angels, going on in in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, 
and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to all the things that are set to perish according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. No value. That's important for us. So what do we see here? As we respond to what Christ has done in our lives, we'll see these for what they are, these debased religions. Now that the sure foundations have been laid, Paul then works through us. And what are some of these ideologies that are creeping up? We just briefly talked about them, but let's, let's kind of name them a little bit more specifically. Right there in verses 16 and 17, we see that legalism is a part of it, right? Specific foods and drinks and festivals, new moons, Sabbaths, all are the areas in which self-made religion can be formed. And Paul knew this all too well coming out of a broken Jewish system, right? He was a Pharisee, right? A Pharisee of Pharisees. He was trying to work this system as, as much as he can, and he was bankrupt. Think Martin Luther, right, in the Catholic Church, confessing daily, moment by moment. It was ridiculous. He like had scrub marks on him because of how many times he was penitent before the Lord. He couldn't make it. Legalism, right? John MacArthur gives a helpful definition. He says, legalism is a religion of human achievement. It argues that spirituality is based on Christ plus human works, and if it's Christ plus anything, you've got a problem. It makes conformity to man-made rules the measure of spirituality. In other words, the focus is more on what I can do than what Christ has done for me. The only problem is I know what I can do and it's nothing. Not much. And legalism seems good on the outside. After all, Christ con constantly encounters this in the religious elites of his day. Think the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the lawyers, attorneys, those guys. They believed that they were closer to God because of how they externally tried to please God. Yet what did Christ think about their rules and all of their additions? You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness." So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I would say he didn't think much of them. Legalism has, never, has the veneer of truth, to be fair, right? But it's completely bankrupt uh, regarding salvation. It sets up an ever-growing list of things we must do to secure and maintain salvation, which is not the good news of the gospel, of what has been completed and done for you on your behalf. Our list will be ever growing, right? Because you're never gonna quite do enough, right? You're never gonna quite be good enough. You're never gonna find that end uh, to the rainbow. It's gonna keep on going. What do we see? This constantly is infiltrating our time. This we know is blatantly false as we remind ourselves, like Peter, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved, period. 
None of this is to say that there isn't a right way to live before God. God gave us his law, right? And his law was a way for us to understand right relationship to him, but we fail in the law. That's why we needed his sacrifice for us. It's like a magnifying glass that reveals the continual sin in our lives so that we can learn to repent and turn to Christ and be filled. So that's legalism. But now let's think about mysticism. Verses 18 through 19, it says, right? Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions, puffed up with, without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So what they were trying to do, they were trying to pursue a deeper or higher sub, subjective religious experience. They were after an experience. It is the belief that the spiritual reality is perceived apart from the human intellect and natural senses. It looks for truth internally, right? Weighing feelings, intuition, and other eternal sensations, and more heavily than objective, observable external data. Think about that for a second. There's a good song by a beautiful eulogy. You can look it up, right? But one of the songs, I can't remember the verse, but one of the verses talking about how this leaf was falling around and he was like, that was God's call on my life. I could just feel it because that leaf was falling to the ground, whatever that meant. Talking about the ridiculousness sometimes that we place on these experiences around us as opposed to the very word of God that is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, right? I've, I counsel a lot and I've heard people use the foolish language like, yes, I mean, I, I'm clearly, God has called me to go, you know, abandon my marriage and go to this person over here. God's clearly calling me to that. I feel it. I don't care what your feelings are. They're wrong. It doesn't matter. I have a feeling I have a need to go do this drug of choice. I need it. You know, perhaps, I mean, God's gave it to us, right? You know, let's talk about the cannabis question. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to step on your toes. Some of you. Yeah. God gave it to us. It's natural, right? So let's go smoke it, right? I have a feeling it's just good and peace. Wrong. I don't care about your feelings. They're wrong. We need to watch ourselves. Our feelings can lie to us because we are deceived. We are deceived people. We need the clear light of the gospel pointing to how we are to live rightly before him. Our feelings can lie to us. The word of God is what is living and active. That's Hebrews, right? Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints, marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what the word of God does. It gets behind your thoughts. It gets behind your senses. What you think is right and checks your motives. And you go, oh yeah, there it is. I'm after me. I'm after my pleasures. I'm after what I want. I'm not submitted to Christ. That's what the word of God does for me. And what does it do? We are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God knows that. The moment we move away from God's word is the moment we become susceptible to these practices. What do you see finally? Asceticism, right there in the same verses, verses 20 through 23. An ascetic, an ascetic is one who is rigorously practicing self-denial. So think of like the extreme forms of monasticism in the Catholic church or think of maybe Tibetan Buddhists uh, up in the mountains, right? Denying themselves of food and basic nutrition just to survive. Why? Because they're after an experience. They're denying their body in order to experience something spiritually. The, the underlying belief is that the body is bad and that by denying it, 
uh, even normal nutrition, one becomes more enlightened. You're gaining ground somewhere. And this is what they're trying to promote to the Colossian church. The problem with asceticism is the focus on the wrong things. Paul says it right there in verse 22. The focus is on those things that are all what? Destined to perish. Meaningless. They're all gonna go away anyway. There is no lasting value. That is why he could encourage Timothy, the young pastor. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He doesn't disregard the value of the body, but a focus on it at the expense of pursuing godliness in Christ will be of no value to you. Interesting, Paul shows that these beliefs don't even help curve what? What does he say right there in verse 23? They have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They don't work. Go ahead, go deny yourself, go starve. And then this is becoming a big thing in our culture. Go see these, the same people that I was telling you saying they're spiritual, right? They're going on these like hookah trips, right? And using these hallucinogenic drugs, right? To have just these binge fests so that they can have some type of experience. Some of them are dying because of this foolishness. This is all over the place. This is rampant in our culture. And here we are because it's baseless. It's found that there is no foundation. And what's happened, they've lost their moorings. They're not holding fast to the head, which is Christ. So all of these empty beliefs were threatening the Colossian church. And some of these beliefs are threatening us today. But as I hope you are beginning to see, this, there is nothing new here. These systems are still at work and God is still at work. God is still sovereign. So how do we address them? Let's think about it for a minute. One, I want you to understand the empty philosophy of our day. Every generation will face, as we've already talked about, something. Something is creeping in. Some, something, some ideology is challenging us. What is it? We're not given a pass. We're not given uh, the, the ability to just bury our heads in the sand and not respond this is the exact opposite of what Peter would encourage the believers that he was writing to. He says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared. You are to be prepared to respond to what's going on, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Love these people. They are confused. As you were confused and as I was confused until God made me new, made you new in him. We're all lost until Christ makes us new. So the encouragement is to know Christ, know Christ, know him. Only then would you be able to recognize these false philosophies. Number two, find freedom in the person and work of Christ. Second Corinthians says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Beautiful. Find the freedom that is in Christ. Because this other, these other worldviews will be shackles for you. They will only corrupt you. Number three, continue in the sanctification process. Hebrews 12 says, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
we have to engage in the process of change. But allow the Lord to be that process for you. Let's pray. Father, we give you this time. Lord God, we thank you for it. Humbly, Father, we recognize that we too can get carried away by man-made religion. It is easy, Father God, to miss your beautiful salvation work when we're not thinking about what what you've done in your sacrifice. It is easy to do the things without recognizing the author behind all of the things. Heavenly Father, you call us to worship you in spirit and truth. Father, so we ask that you would just humble our hearts. I know that some of us here, Lord God, have maybe, maybe we've been wandering a little bit. Maybe we've allowed this culture to press in on us more than we've pressed back on the culture and allowed for some of these ideologies to creep into our own ways of thinking. Lord God, convict our hearts. Search us through your word. Not my word, not somebody else's word, your word. Your word that has stood the test of time and your word that will carry us to eternity. Lord God, your word that we can build our foundation on because we know that your word points to you. And this is a beautiful reality that we walk in. Maybe some have come in here this morning, Father God, and they recognize this is them. They are, they are the person that has fully imbibed this worldview that is apart from you, and they need to turn. Help them to realize the gospel is for them as well the good news of your rescue, your redemption, that they no longer have to strive to earn your good graces, that they can come at your feet in repentance and turn from their sin, place it on your worthy shoulders and you'll take it. And what will you give that new heart that new heart that the prophet Ezekiel was talking about. And that you would stand us up in new life so that we could live rightly before you. We worship you in this moment, Father, and we praise you for it. It's in Jesus' name, amen.